0: If you open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 29, we'll be reading verses 11 through 19. That can be found on page 590 if you're using the church Bible. It's in front of you on the pew rack. Isaiah 29, beginning to read at verse 11. And the vision of all this has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed, When men give it to one who can read, saying, read this, he says, I can't, for it's sealed. And when they give the book to one who cannot read, saying, read this, he says, I cannot read. And the Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, And the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. Ah, you who hide deep from the Lord, your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark and who says, who sees us, who knows us, you turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay? And the thing made should say of its maker how he did not make me, or the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding. Is it not yet a very little while until Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field, and the fruitful field shall be regarded as a forest? In that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord, and the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel.
1: Well, do keep your Bible open at Isaiah 29. For those who are new to 10th, we've been going through the book of Isaiah. Then we packed him off on vacation. Some people were glad that we sent him on vacation, and when I People have been coming to me and saying, are we going back to Isaiah? They've had either looks of glee on their face or groans. Uh, And uh, so (laughs) whatever it is you come with this morning, a glee or a groan, back to Isaiah, we go. And rumors that Isaiah's regretting ever having written the book are completely wrong. Uh, But as we come to this morning, I, I think we we come to this particular chapter at a moment of time. A moment of time at the beginning of a year, not that the beginning of a new year really is of any significance. It's just another day, it's another Sunday, it's another breath we take. But in the scheme of things, in the minds of men and women, a year marks something in their life. It's a monument to the progress of their individual life and to the progress of a movement, and the progress of the church. And I want to ask the question whether, is a new beginning possible when the people of God have lost their way? Is a new beginning possible when the people of God have lost their way? Now the question that, that I've asked arises actually at this passage And you could have asked it of the people of Isaiah's day. But the question I have now asked is as relevant to this day as it was to his day. I spent two weeks in London. And during those two weeks, again, seen from a European perspective, the state of the church and the state of the world. I've come back to the States and... uh, reading the, the news and hearing reports and seeing what is going on in the church at large, there are things abroad, and the question is, when we are faced with a languishing church, and the Western church is languishing, and we are faced with an arrogant world, that is, a culture and a world system that is increasingly regarding Christianity in particular as something to be marginalized or attacked or even persecuted. When we are faced with a languishing church and an arrogant world, is there a new beginning possible for the people of God when they have lost their way? Such were the conditions back in Isaiah's day. And such, are the situ- such is the situation which Isaiah is addressing in this chapter. And as he addresses this, he is concerned, I think, in this chapter with demonstrating to us the powers that are at work in the world, the power of wrong ideas, the power of bad choices, and the power of true revival. We see the power of wrong ideas in the first eight verses of this chapter. As he looks, first of all, to the people of God, and then as he looks to the world around. He begins by addressing the people of God. He begins with this word translated, ah, in our English Standard Version. If you have an older version, you'll see the word, woe. This word is a bad word. It is a dreadful word. Awe and dread should come upon us when we hear this word, and especially when this word is addressed to the people of God. I I want you to notice to whom he is speaking, Ariel, Ariel, he says, the city where David encamped. So we look at that and we think, what is this word, Ariel, mean? What's its significance? It's obviously a reference to Jerusalem, verse 1. That's the city where David once laid siege. He once besieged Jerusalem in order to make it the center of his kingdom. Verse 8, it's called Mount Zion. So it's obviously, not only is it Jerusalem, the city, but it's Mount Zion, the site of the temple. And this word, Ariel, was long obscure to scholars but there is now a consensus that the word should be translated by the expression altar hearth altar in the sense of something where you lay a sacrifice the altar where the sacrifice was killed the sacrifice was burned the hearth is the place where it was burned. It's the place in the center of the altar where the animal that had been sacrificed is consumed as an offering to God. So not only is he addressing the community, Jerusalem, not only is he addressing the temple, Mount Zion, but he is addressing that which is at the very heart of the worship of God's worshiping community, the sacrificial system where the animals offered in sacrifice were given to God. In other words, what Isaiah is addressing here is not just the people of God as an organized community or society, but as a worshiping community and society. He is putting us right at the very center of the worship of these very religious people. The fire on that altar was the outward visible sign of God's presence. Both in wrath by consuming the sacrifice and in mercy by providing pardon as a result of the offering of the sacrifice. That fire on the altar hearth declared that God could either consume the sacrificial substitute or the fire of God could consume them. That's the reality behind the use of this word. And here God is addressing his own people. Do you see this? He is addressing his people and he is saying some disturbing things to them. Look at verse 2. I will distress Ariel and there will be mourning and lamentation. Verse 3. I will encamp or besiege, set up my siege works around you, besieging you with towers and will raise siege works against you. Verse 4, you will be brought low, he says. Again in verse 4, your voice shall come from the ground like the voice of a ghost, as if you've already gone into the other world. So you will go around like a dead thing. You will be brought down, you will be brought low. Here is God addressing his own people. And he is threatening judgment and discipline and chastisement upon his own people. And you notice that the the author underlines who is doing this. It's the maker who's doing this. It's the redeemer who's doing this. It is God who is doing this. One day they would wake up and they would look over the battlements of Jerusalem. And there would be the Assyrian army with their siege works and their armies. And blocking all the routes of supply and hemming them into their city. And the prophet is saying to them, when you see that happening, those are second causes. The primary cause is God. God has a controversy with his own people. And the God who has a controversy with his own people retains the sovereign right to discipline those whom he loves, to chastise the church that he loves, and to even judge the people that he loves. And there are times in which that kind of scenario has happened. The whole history of Christianity is the history of God dealing with his people. He speaks his word to his people. Every time you and I come under the sound of God's word, that word either judges or justifies us. Every time we hear it preached, the word of God is being pressed, not just into my mind, but into my heart. God is after my heart, my will, my my affections, as well as my mind. And that word comes to judge or justify. And where that word is ignored, God removes the lampstand of witness. God intervenes, he chastises those whom he loves. And so we have a languishing church here in the West. Because this church in the West has done what? This church in the West has abandoned the huge, vast resources of the church have abandoned God and the Bible, the God of the Bible, and the work of Christ. And it's languishing because of our compromises with the world around us. And these bad ideas... That somehow or other we're okay. That's what these people in Jerusalem had. Do you see that? Ariel, Ariel, the city David encamped. Ye add year to year. Let the feasts run their course. That is, these people were doing the routine. They were going to church. They were saying, reciting their creed. They were saying their confession. They were putting their money in the offering. They were doing everything they needed to do. They were doing this day in and day out, year in and year out. They were regular and they, were, they believed that because they did this regularly, that the God who was present there in the sacrifice of the altar, that that God was on their side, and that they were therefore immune from danger and from harm. And Isaiah is saying, don't put any trust in the regularity of your worship, or in the formality of your worship, because God will discipline his people. But on the other hand... As the world looks on and sees a languishing church and seizes the opportunity to come down on it hard in order to embarrass her or in order to destroy her, the Lord has a word for the world. Look at verse 5. If you read verses 1 to 4, by the time you get to verse 5, what you're expecting to hear is this. Don't read it yet. What you're expecting to read is this. God's saying, so, because I'm against you and because I'm encamped against you and because I'm out to distress you, you are going to be obliterated and annihilated and wiped off the face of the earth. But instead, there's a twist in verse 5. These instruments that God is using against his church are in the end, small dust. Like passing chaff. Dust, which when you pick it up just goes through your hands like sand in the seashore. It vanishes. Or like the passing chaff. There you are out in the fields on a windy day and the the chaff has been lifted up and blown around. And you've got hay fever and it's miserable. But anyway, that's the picture. That's what these enemies are going to be. God is going to blow them away. He's going to blow them away one day. You can imagine what these arrogant Assyrians thought when they managed to penetrate right into Judah, having demolished Israel to the north and surrounded Jerusalem with their army. Can you imagine what's going on in their head? There is nothing to this Israelite religion. There is nothing to this God of Israel and Judah. They are nothing. Here we are. We have the power. Everything is going in our direction. The cultural forces are on our side. These people are the people of yesterday. We are the people of today. God comes to those people. He comes to the world. He comes to his own people and he says, listen. These foes of yours are like small dust. And the multitude of the ruthless are like passing chaff. Why? Look at verse 5. Because in an instant. Suddenly. You will be visited by the Lord of hosts. There is going to be a theophany. There is going to be an appearance of God with thunder and earthquake and great noise with whirlwind and tempest and the flame of a devouring fire. This is a revelation of God. God is going to intervene in the world. This was going to happen on a small scale when God scattered the Assyrian army overnight without Israel having to fire one shot. But here Isaiah is looking further into the future because these scriptures were written for our learning and our understanding as God's people today. He's pointing us to the future. All of these enemies of God's church, all of these opponents of God's people will one day be visited by the Lord with an appearance of his glory. You remember it talks about the Lord Jesus' second coming. When he comes with great power and glory. He comes to judge the earth in the fullness of his majesty. There's coming a day when God will thwart all that the enemy has planned for the church. Their ideas of their own untouchability will be shattered on that day. So here you have the church putting its security in its religious observance rather than in the personal trust of God. Here you have the world trusting in its power and its own might, thinking that might is right. And here is God saying, a plague on both your houses. I can judge my people as I please, and I will destroy the world in my time. You can bet on it. You can be guaranteed about that. And the lesson from both of those errors, those bad ideas, is this. That we should bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So there's the power of wrong ideas. And then secondly, there's the power of bad choices. What got this church, what got these people into this mess? God talks to them in verse 9. He's talking to people who have been exposed to the revelation of God, to the Word of God. And now he's saying to them, in notes of real sarcasm, by the way, Astonish yourselves and be astonished. Blind yourselves and be blind. Be drunk, but not with wine. Stagger, but not with strong drink. He's being sarcastic. He's saying to these people, what is the problem here? The problem is that you have no eye for the truth. You have been living in illusion. You've been going on your way, blinding yourself to the Word of God. It's very possible for people to to blind themselves to the Word of God, to not hear the Word of God. Eric Alexander used to say this. He used to say, There are some people we will not let God speak to us through. There are some people we will not let God speak to us through. And there are some things we will not let God speak to us about. And that's true. The word of God is the word of God. Even if it's in the mouth of an ungodly minister, it's the word of God. It's God's voice, not mine or any other minister's voice. It is the word of God. It will either judge you or condemn you or justify you. And so these people had sealed their ears to what God was saying. And God says to them, you sealed your ears. I'm going to put more wax in there so you cannot hear. You have no eyes for the truth, so go on the way you're going. Rebels who willfully close their hearts refuse to love the truth of God and reject the salvation offered in the gospel will find themselves facing judicial consequences. That's what 11 and 12 are all about. The vision has become to you like the words of a book that's sealed. You can't get into it. It's sealed. You can't get to read it. It's sealed. You closed your eyes to the truth. Now you can't even look at it. You closed your ears to the truth. Now you can't even hear it. You closed your will to the truth, you, can't even, you will not even pick up the book and open it, crack it open, in order to see what's there. God in his judicial hardening is hardening people to the gospel. Now you think of the goodness and patience of God with his church that he should permit this to happen. And why is he doing this? Verse 13. The Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me and the fear, their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. He's talking about their worship here. Do you know, nowhere in the Bible, nowhere in the Bible does God show any concern about whether our worship is professionally excellent Aesthetically pleasing, emotionally satisfying, or culturally accessible. All that God is concerned about in worship, however well you sing or however badly you sing, however much you've memorized the hymns or not memorized the hymns, all that God is concerned about is stated in this verse. Have you got a heart for God? Is he your audience? Because we do this for him. When I sing these words, I'm singing to him. When I make this confession, I am confessing my faith to him. When I confess my sins, I'm confessing my sins to him. When I hear this sermon, I am listening to his voice beyond the sound of any other human voice. It is to him. And when I leave this building, I want to go out to live in the world to him, to his glory, to his praise. You see, that expression at the end of verse 13 is important here. Their fear of me, that is their reverence for me, the way they worship me, their thoughts of me, their reverence for me. Their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. What what that means is this. It is a learned response. You're doing what you've seen other people do. So when you come into church, you sit down and you close your eyes. Other people do that. I don't know why they do it, but they do that. When you go for a meal, you sit down and you say grace. Perfunctory, perhaps. Maybe you take out your Bible and you read a bit of the Bible. You put it away. Why? Because other people do that. If you've been to certain Christian schools, you've learned the subcultural language that you use. The Lord led me to do this. The Lord's telling me that. Go and see a psychiatrist is what I say. Anyway, uh, seriously, you've learned the language to use in order to communicate spiritual Emotions and feelings and attitudes and so on. And if somebody doesn't use that language, people take them as their suspect. Those are traditions taught by men. They don't, they don't actually say anything about the fear of the Lord in your heart. And that's all that God is looking for. He's looking for the heart It's interesting that Jesus himself references this very passage and these very words in Matthew chapter 15 when the Pharisees and the scribes got all worked up about the fact that the disciples of Jesus were, in their words, breaking the tradition of the elders, for they do not wash their hands when they eat, ceremonially. Interestingly, they came up from Jerusalem in this context. Uh, Isaiah's addressing Jerusalem, And uh, Jesus quotes Isaiah by name, he refers to the words of this prophecy and applies it to the time in which He is speaking. And he says, "This people, this people, not just the leaders, but these people, their hearts are far from me. Their religion is a commandment. Their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. It wasn't heartfelt. It didn't come from the heart. It was just what you did. That's why Jesus says to them, using very strong language, why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? And again, so for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You have to know what is worth dying for. What is worth dying for are not the little traditions and little actions and little kind of in Phrases or whatever that we've just kind of accumulated in our evangelical subculture. What really you go to the wall for. What really you die for. Is the gospel that's been revealed in scripture. What's in the Bible is important. What isn't in the Bible frankly doesn't amount to a hill of beans. These parallels with Jesus day and our day. Is that their whole approach to their religious activities, was allied to bad theology and resulted in a mishandling of Scripture. People in Isaiah's day, well, they were failing to trust in God when it came to the rub. And so he challenges them. It's feigned worship. They were doing the right things, but it wasn't coming from the heart. So when we come to worship God. And we don't see that our expectations are fulfilled, even our expectations of what we should feel or what we should accompany true worship. It's not down to me to being moved by the glory of God, but my being moved by other things, the music, the quietness, the reflection, the preaching, or whatever. The fear of God is reduced to something man-made. Am I moved by the glory of God? Well, that's a terrible state to be in. Blind and hardened to the word of God, what is the cure? That's the question. What is the cure for that? And in verse 14, we have the answer. The cure is the intervention of God. Therefore, again, you're expecting God to say, because they're blinded to my word, even though I've given it to these people, I'm going to nuke them. Or words to that effect. Instead, look at verse 14. It surprises us. Therefore, behold. Look at this. This is a wonder to behold. I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder. And the wisdom of their wise men shall perish. And the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. God is promising that in the future there's going to be an extraordinary thing accomplished. That God is going to display his power again on behalf of his people. It will be something so remarkable that you would put it on the same level as the deliverance of Israel from Egypt. That was a mighty, mighty act of God. But this wonder, this wonder is even greater than that. Do you notice the repetition of the word three times? This wonder upon wonder upon wonder. This is a mighty, mighty, mighty act of God. This is something no human could do. These wonders are things no human can do. In the book of Isaiah, this word wonder has already been bolted on to the idea of the Messiah, the coming anointed one of God. He is the wonderful counselor. The salvation that he will bring has been planned by a God who is wonderful in counsel. That's from Isaiah 9 and Isaiah 28. This salvation, that he's talking to this mighty intervention of God, which is the only solution to hard-heartedness and to spiritual rebellion in, in in the lives of men and women. This action of God is the action of God, this wonder of his incarnation, God becoming flesh. This wonder of the fact that this God in the flesh will be taken and pinned to a cross And scandalized and shamed, and buried, uh, crucified, dead, and buried. And the wonder that this same one will be raised from the dead and given great glory. And I know that's the right interpretation because the Apostle Paul picks up this very passage in 1 Corinthians 1. And he applies it to the cross of Christ. He says, This is the great act of God's wisdom. This is the wonder upon wonder upon wonder that God has accomplished in Christ. Um, A work of multiple wonders in the spiritual realm. On the cross of Christ, the world's wisdom is foiled once and for all. The wonderful and shocking things foretold by Isaiah are accomplished in Jesus the Messiah. The conflict between human wisdom and the word of the cross is stark. The word of the cross runs against the grain of everything that the world thinks is clever and intelligent and accessible and wonderful and that works. The cross is about what? Is it about shame and disgrace and nakedness and mockery and rejection and rebellion and and? Friends, deserting friends, and, and a lifeless body broken. That's what the cross is about. There is nothing pretty about the cross. There is nothing beautiful about the cross. It is the ugliest thing in the universe. God in the flesh murdered by his creatures and yet it is the word of the cross that is the best and biggest wisdom in the universe because by the cross billions upon men, men of men, men and women will be converted will be brought to glory will have resurrection bodies will be adopted into the family of god will inherit the universe All because of the cross. The apostle can say the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, quoting Isaiah 29, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish? The wisdom of the world. For since in its wisdom. The world did not know God. It is pleased. Pleased God. Through the folly of what is preached. And the preaching of it. To save those. Who believe. It is in the utter folly of the cross. That you may have a home in glory. Glory. And a destiny in heaven. Now you see, this lies at the very heart of Isaiah's message here. He's talked about the power of wrong ideas and the power of bad choices. And where it ends up is that the wisdom of the cross exposes. Exposes, for example, human leadership that gets it all wrong. There in verse 15 and so on. There were those in the leadership of the people of God who believed in their own resourcefulness rather than in the Lord. They didn't want to do the Lord's work in the Lord's way. They wanted to do the Lord's work in their way. And so they had little covert meetings behind closed doors. You who hide deep from the Lord, your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark. You who say, who sees us, who knows us. They were taking matters into their own hands. They saw the emergency, a languishing church, an arrogant world. They thought, this is what we can do about it. We'll we'll sort it out. We'll, We'll deal. We'll manage the problem. There's always foolish leadership like that in the church. We'll manage the problem. God challenges it. He says, do you see what you're doing? You're acting as practical atheists. Verse 16. You turn things upside down. Shall the 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 potter be regarded as the clay? Do you think you can manipulate God? You know, you're the clay. God is working on you. Do you think you, the clay, can kind of reverse things so that you actually work on God? To make God do what you want Him to do? You can't do that. Does the thing that's made say of its maker, he did not make me? Now you can see echoes of the world we live in today. That's what, isn't that what popular science is saying? Isn't that what Dawkins is saying? And isn't that what the, the world is saying? Here is a made thing, having the arrogance to think that it knows as much as God knows, pretending to knowledge that is beyond its own competence and saying, he did not make me. It un- it uncovers the arrogance of the world that is creeping into the church. Here is the thing formed, saying to him who formed it, he doesn't know any better. The arrogance at the very heart of the world. God challenges it. It's exposed by the wisdom of the cross. Those who turn things upside down have forgotten that the maker has the right to do as he pleases with his world. Every right to determine its course, decide its destiny. Every right to say that he has has planned out the end from the beginning. He is the creator. We're the creature. We may not disregard him. Well, you say, this is why we didn't want to come back to Isaiah. It's depressing. But it doesn't end there, you see. The good bit's coming, by the way. Chapter 40. If you can keep afloat to chapter 40, you'll be fine. But here, look at verse 17. Here we have the power of spiritual transformation. There's going to be a new creation. It's going to affect the environment, verse 17 going to affect people spiritually, verses 18 and 19. It's going to affect us socially in terms of a new community, verses 20 and 21. And he reverts here to poetry as he thinks of the great change that God is going to bring about in the future. He uses the metaphor of a mountainous country becoming fruitful, a forest becoming an orchard, a reversal of fortunes, and he especially talks about a great renewal which touches individuals. Verse 18, in that day the deaf shall hear the words of the book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. He's looking into the future, isn't he? He's looking to the new creation. Ultimately, it's the whole new creation, the new heavens, the new earth, the resurrection bodies, the brand new you on that day. But that day has already begun to be fulfilled. Because today there are resurrections, spiritual resurrections, that anticipate the physical resurrection of the last day. Today there are new creations. If anyone is in Christ, they're what? They're a new creation already. Already today, the physically deaf don't hear instantly. The spiritually blind, the physically blind don't All see immediately, but they will one day. But right now, guess what? Right now, people who are spiritually blind are seeing. People who are spiritually deaf are hearing the Word of God. Right now, there is this work of God that that opens the, the Word of God to people as they come and hear it. Opens their understanding. I'm imagining even as I speak this morning, even though it's from Isaiah, and Isaiah's tough meat, that there's somebody here, and as you're listening to the word of God this morning, God is doing something inside your heart and mind, and he is unlocking something that was closed. And he's speaking. He's speaking to your mind, but he's speaking to your heart. He's speaking to your condition. He's speaking to your position before God. That's why when a person becomes a Christian, Paul can say in, Ephes- in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8, it's like a whole new creation. At one time you were darkness. The darkness of the unformed creation, you remember? But now you are light in the Lord. You are light in the Lord. And on that day, God will overturn the expectations of the world. He will put store not in the power and success the world does. He will overturn that. Do you notice verse 19? The language of the Beatitudes of Jesus. In the Sermon on the Mount. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord. And the poor among mankind. That is the poor in spirit. Among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. This is not the world's way. This is the Lord's way. There will be an exuberant delight. There will be laughter and joy in his presence on that day. The meek shall inherit the earth. Did you hear me? The meek shall inherit the earth. There will be joy unspeakable and full of glory on that day. That's where we're going. That's our destiny. That's the end of the story. I'm telling you. I'm spoiling it. I'm giving you the spoiler of the human story. In that day, there will be joy unspeakable and full of glory for God's people. Therefore, verse 22, Therefore, thus says the Lord who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob, Jacob shall no more be ashamed. This languishing church in the world today which very often is exposed for its weaknesses and its failures and its inability to organize itself or to do anything right sometimes, on that day, will not be ashamed. When I was a wee boy, I used to love that, those verses in First John chapter 2 when it says, that, I learned it in the King James, it doth not yet appear, it does not yet appear what we shall be. You know the church looks at it, the world, looks at the church, and it thinks you know you're ineffective. You're just a bunch of crazy people, and, and we are probably, but that's beside the point. But it looks at us as ineffective. It doth not yet appear what we shall be, but when He shall appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is, and all the transformation of that day, and says. The prophet, that's coming in a short time. That is a short time to God. It's been nearly 3,000 years since Isaiah's day. It's a short time to God, however, before all of that is ultimately fulfilled. And in the meantime, in the meantime, the first and major sign that the Lord is working in spiritual transformation in people today is that those people discover a new awareness of truth. A new ability to grasp it and grow in it. And when God sends restoration or revival, there is a new need for truth. There is a conviction about where truth is to be found. There is a zeal for truth. There is an appetite for the book of God. And I do not think it beyond the the, the wit of man under the inspiration of the hel- and help of the Holy Spirit, for us to, as a people, at the beginning of 2015, to set ourselves this task of crying to God that in the midst of a languishing church and an arrogant world, He would, in His mercy, do for us in our day what He did for, for the people of God. Then what he promises to do then to the people of God. That he, would, that he would send forth fresh joy in the Lord to his people. That he would enable us to, to exult in the Holy One of Israel. That we would have a new appetite for the word of God. Not just that we might be take excellent notes. But that we might be changed by it. Transformed by it energized by it, zealous for it, and make an impact on this society that's going down the tubes, and perhaps stay the judgment of God that may inevitably be going to fall upon our society because of our rejection of the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Would that Would that God would do in our day what God has done in the past. Would that God would do in our day what he has done on these very shores in past days. And by his mighty spirits and such an awakening of God upon the church of God that the world would be wakened up to its need and come seeking the way to Christ. Can we pray for that? Can we urge each other to pray for that? That God would attend the work of the kingdom, that we might stand in reverent awe at the wonders that He will do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Your Word is truth. We thank you that Your Word is like a living, living fire. It's unpredictable. It comes at us from all quarters. Our Minds are challenged by it. Our spirits are offended by it. Our wills are confronted by it. It comes sometimes when we're not expecting it to disturb the conscience. We pray for us, Lord, as a people here. We thank you for this particular local church. We pray that we, as your people, would pray together for a mighty, mighty work of God. We pray it in Jesus' strong name. Amen.